0: So, where to start? This is a journey into sound brought to you in living color on WTDR. How do you like that? The fault, dear Brutus, is not in our stars, but in ourselves. Correct, 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 correct. Good luck. We care about your world. Stay tuned. My guest is Amy Hornblass. Amy's a local teacher and a graduate of Goddard College. She majored in community health and a background in the effects of trauma on kids. And we're now living in a time when I think everyone in this country is being traumatized by the recent events in Washington and around the country in regards to the election and the way things have built up over the last four years. And that's not even to mention how all the events of the past four years and past month are really just arising out of kind of the collective unconscious of this country that it hasn't really acknowledged all the the white supremacist, racist, male dominant, and kind of that might-makes-right, violent approach to dealing with the world. So I'm saying all this is in that realm of trauma and the effect it's having on all of us and of course all of that trickles down to our children who are particularly vulnerable to all of this because they soak all this stuff up like a sponge they have no defenses and so I think that's going to be what we're going to be talking about this morning
1: yeah well I got in touch with you you know I've, I've always liked your show and thank you inviting me on because I feel like, you know, you take the time for a thoughtful discussion with your guests. And so I always learn something from your show, from the guests that you have. And so, you know, when I heard your interview with Leanne Gray last week, she did work with social consciousness. I think that's what she called it. um, And she talked about the inadvertent harms, you know, that happen to children and that require empathy to heal. And, you know, that really resonated with me and with the concerns that I've had. Recently, you know, I'm, I'm a Goddard graduate, and when I was at Goddard, I, I helped out at the health center there with Suzanne Richmond. And as part of my work there, very early on, I remember being brand new and very young, and I coordinated an AIDS Awareness Week, you know, and invited guests and, and had different presentations and things. And so, you know, I've been involved in, the, in these kinds of subjects, you know, like viruses and prevention, but particularly with AIDS, you know, it was a difficult topic to talk about, if you remember back then. You know, it was very sensitive and explosive, you know, and things. People had a hard time talking about it in a reasonable way.
0: And when was this?
1: Early 90s. Okay. And so, you know, I remember I volunteered for a sexual assault program in Barrie. I think it was my first or second year at Goddard. And I remember calling the agency to volunteer. And when they said, oh, it's a sexual violence program, you know, that's not what I thought it was. And I said, oh, oh, never mind. I hung up the phone and I thought i don't want to talk about that that's totally scary you know i was so young and talk about sex and violence combined you know nobody was doing that back then and i said you know if i'm afraid to talk about it you know then it needs to be talked. you know someone needs to be brave so i called them back and i volunteered and and that led me down a whole path of volunteering and being on boards for those programs and eventually you know some federal funding came through and i got to be an educator with a sexual you know violence program and um So I did that for 10 years and worked with kids who had been through sexual and domestic violence, but I also did prevention in the schools, and I started to realize right away the effects of media on kids, you know, video games and violent movies and the trauma, you know, I mean, it's a different kind of trauma, but it has some similar effects on the participants in the games, nightmares, you know, and things like that. So through all of that work, I ended up becoming a health teacher in the school's And so when Leanne Gray was talking about situations in schools, you know, I had already been looking into the active shooter drills that we were going to start doing at my school. So I I could understand what she was saying. And actually, the spring, when schools were closed in March, and we had a lockdown, so Leanne was talking about, you know, the, the effect of the lockdown she experienced, you know, and we were sent home for what was supposed to be two weeks, you know, and I work with kids in kindergarten through eighth grade. And... You know, that was really hard for them. So I got really concerned about that. I actually started a kids' show on GDR. So every Saturday you can listen to my kids' show if you want a bit of fun and play, because I feel like the kids really need that. And also this summer I started a survey to find out about the effects of masks. So I've been conducting a survey of adults. Of course, my primary concern is of children and masks and other sensitive populations, like, you know, people with developmental disabilities, who I've worked a lot with, people with health conditions. You know, so I was concerned about masks, you know, when they were first proposed. And there's very little research into that. So I developed a mask survey because the World Health Organization, you know, was putting out a call, like, we need more scientific evidence. We don't have scientific evidence of the effectiveness of masks, and we don't have scientific evidence of their harms. And so I started a survey just to try to start to get the ball rolling And I just came out with a fall report. You can find it online if you're interested. It's vtmasksurvey.com. You can read the fall report. You can take the survey. And so, you know, I'm doing this little survey in Vermont. And then, lo and behold, of course, you know, people around the world have been conducting these kinds of scientific research projects. And out of Germany, what I sent you, Tonio, you know, they were able to do the survey I wish I could have done. (laughs) You know, they they surveyed children you know across the country in Germany they ended up with responses from over 20,000 parents regarding over 25,000 kids in one week they got that many responses you know and so then they ask about physical harms social harms mental emotional harms and so I thought that you would be interested in that work so I sent it to you (laughs) Tonio and thank you so much for having me on your show
0: it's wonderful to have you and I think this is an important thing to talk about. I was actually thinking about this too. I remember hearing people talk about the effects that mask wearing is having on particularly young children who are taking in the world and learning you know, from, from their direct observation of the world and the people in it and how masks are covering up the faces of the people around them and Human beings are pretty unique in the animal kingdom in the way we are so expressive through our facial expressions. And when we wear masks, children are kind of robbed of perhaps their most reliable indicator of what's happening relationally in the world around them, with the people around them. So I I really wonder, and when you sent me your email... It just opened that up again and made me think, wow, what is happening to our kids? How are they responding to that? And how are adults and scientists and healthcare workers and parents observing the effects of that on children? And are children offering any feedback on that, those who may have any experience to compare it with prior to the pandemic?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's why the study is so validating. You know, I mean, you and I could, and a few other people, could probably have sat around, and you know, and, and if someone proposed, hey, we're going to do a study of masks, not only on children, but on the adults in their surroundings, you know, <laughs> what do you think the effects of that would be? You know, and of course, we would not be able to come up with such accurate results, you know, and I also sent you, uh, why don't I read the titles of these, because I'd really love it if people would do their own research and please read these studies. You know, there's tons of information about this out there. And so the study that we're talking about right now, this study out of Germany, is called Corona Children Studies, in quotes, C-O-K-I, co I I I don't know what that is. First results of a Germany-wide registry on mouth and nose covering mask in children. And one of the first authors' name is Schwartz, S-C-H-W-A-R-Z, so you can look that up and you can read it. And then another one that I think is really interesting, I also sent you, Tonio, is it's actually an opinion paper called Masked Education, the Benefits and Burdens of Wearing Masks in Schools During the Current Corona Pandemic. And that one's by Manfred Spitzer, S-P-I-T-Z-E-R. And this one being an opinion paper, you know, it's not a study, but I feel like the author does a really good job of gathering the evidence up to date. You know, it's just a summary of the findings of what, you know, they felt were relevant studies on other subjects, like if you cover, you know, the face, what part of the face is covered is really important as far as how we can read emotions and, and how we learn to respond to emotions and how we learn to feel. You know, it was even interesting in there, the author points out that we may not be able to feel emotions as much You know, the the implications of this. I mean, these these are our kids, you know, and this is the environment. And then we see from the study that children are, let's see, the child no longer wants to go to school. A third of kids, zero to six in the survey in Germany, a third of them don't want to go to school. The child sleeps worse than usual. The average for all age groups is a third of children. The child has developed new fears, 25% of kids. And some of those, you know, anxieties increasing, fears such as nightmares of, you know, masked people and not being able to tell what their emotions are. I mean, we could have figured this out, Tonya, without having to do this. And so it's disturbing to me that science seems to have lost its sacred nature. You know, its sacred purpose should be to understand the world better, the things we don't understand, to come to understand them better so that we can heal them and help make the world a better place. And I feel like we're doing science retroactively. You
0: well, know, st- I really say what you mean by that.
1: You know, that we had to do this study. That not only did we say, okay, let's look at one school, let's do this in one school and see what the results are, but we've done this worldwide. The man who wrote this opinion paper, he says, in order to decrease the spread of the virus, along with other measures of physical distancing and economic lockdowns, school closures were implemented during March... 2020, affecting more than 1.5 billion students, billion, children and adolescents around the globe. These closures of schools lasted for a few weeks only, as in Denmark and up to several months in Italy and other countries, and led to marked decreases in educational gains, hunger, increases in child abuse, And in general, the risk of scarring the life chances of a generation of young people because of the long-term psychological, physiological, educational, and even economic burden that societies put on their most vulnerable members. And, you know, the sad part about it, you know, Tony, is that most people won't know about this study or this opinion paper. And then even when we try to bring it up, people's fear you know it gets back to what your guest was talking about it was such a great interview that you did with her you know that when we have increased fear we are less likely to think reasonably right fear shuts down the ability to see reality and make good decisions is what your guest was talking about and that is exactly of course what the research shows you know this is what's true your heart tells you that you know we can't think clearly and and right now the fear you know whatever side of of a political spectrum you're on or an economic spectrum you're on, people are under so much pressure and the fear is mounting for all kinds of reasons. And so, you know, when I ask for this through my mask survey, when all these other researchers, the two I sent you and tons of others, you know, the conclusion from the World Health Organization and everybody is we need to do a fair cost benefit analysis of the use of masks or the use of lockdowns and it's difficult to do that when people are afraid because they aren't willing to weigh the situation evenly and they're not even willing to do it in some cases which is scary you know because that's what we all do we you know we we always do a cost benefit analysis of of every public health measure you know we do public health analysis for ourselves you know if i'm going to have knee surgery i need to weigh the costs and benefits of that you know how much is it going to hurt If I get the surgery, how much is it going to hurt if I don't? But when it comes to this one issue, it's the fear. That's why I was like, wow, you know, I think Tonio can help us talk about this. You know, he's the right person totally for this. And you had the right guests to kind of lead the audience up, you know, to be ready. Because we just, we have to take a deep breath. And we have to look at this, you know, because the results are so serious. I had already been looking into video games and wrote a curriculum and and a book called This Is Your Brain on Television back when I was teaching with that sexual assault and domestic violence program. And, you know, I did a lot of research into the brain and fear and how video games and just violent media in general, you know, increase our fear. And when we are afraid, you know, our heart beats faster, our blood pumps harder, our forebrain shuts down. Mm -hmm. You know, we can't think clearly. We can't plan.
0: And we don't learn.
1: Exactly. And that's why trauma in schools, right, was what everybody was talking about, you know, for the past 10 years. And I was so grateful that finally, you know, after working with all these trauma survivors to see the schools be responsive and take that into consideration. And then we're here, where we're at right now, and I'm just like, wow. You know, when I think of all the work I've done in all these areas from, you know, HIV prevention, which is not being talked about right now tobacco prevention, which more and more kids are home now in smoky homes, you know, spending all day there. You know, schools are only part-time, and now we have vape pens, electric cigarettes. You know, I was just involved in trying to address that issue. When everything got shut down and the kids got sent home, um, nutrition, I know that they're not necessarily all, especially with the economic situation, eating well right now, and they already We're showing signs of deficiencies of all kinds. You know, I'm worried about them, and I feel like it's the last thing people are willing to talk about, you know, all these other things. I mean, if they develop more asthma because they're living in smoky homes more of the time, you know, and people smoke when they're under economic stress, you know, we know addiction is doubling right now, you know, for their caregivers, (laughs) you know, maybe them too, and not exercising. I mean, I don't see kids outside playing. Playgrounds were shut down, you know. I mean, seriously, you know, Mm -hmm. and so we're discouraging outdoor plays, you know, so if we cause increases in asthma and we know that kids, you know, the children who have died from COVID, they had complicating issues, you know, (laughs) so if if we're causing more complicating issues, you see, we just need to have like a reasonable discussion
0: Mm -hmm. about this. Right. As you've been talking about that, I've been thinking, and I been thinking about this prior to this as well. You know, what would be the optimal setup in a classroom in a time of pandemic, considering the pros and cons of mask wearing? It's understood that children are much less likely to contract the virus, or at least to be harmed by it. But teachers are vulnerable. So how do you you deal with that dynamic? I mean, it seems reasonable to me to allow Children not to wear masks, but what about the teacher? If children can't see the teacher's face, you know, during class, during lessons, in their communication, they're missing out on a lot of the teacher's communication because, as I think we all know or should know, that at least 95% of communication is nonverbal. So if all that we have is the verbal, we're missing so much, and for children especially, in school especially, within you know, the context of education. How much are children losing in this equation, and how should we be setting up the You're classroom? Actually,
1: yeah, you brought up um, a lot of really interesting points, you know, that we would need to kind of tease apart. And yeah, it's exactly the direction we need to go with this cost-benefit analysis. So what is the risk? you know, what you're asking and and is it worth it. So for children, we know that they're at very low risk of death if they get the virus. And then we're seeing a lot of evidence that they don't transmit it very much. An interesting study came out that UVM participated in. This just came out. It's also very exciting. It says we found that seeing more children per day does not increase the probability of getting COVID nineteen. So they found in Vermont anyway, in in their study that, you know, kids were not transmitting the virus to adults. We further identified factors that have an increasing effect on getting COVID. And that included practices such as number of daily contacts, living in an apartment and wearing a mask. So this study found, and there are a lot of other studies that I can give you that are showing that are coming out now and and have always been showing that, that masks don't prevent transmission. They don't That has not been proven. That's why the World Health Organization says, you know, that quality or direct scientific evidence, you know, supporting the use of masks in the public. Now, this is, you know, in the widespread public amongst healthy people, you know, is just not supported. And and we could break that down more, you know.
0: I think we should. I think we should clarify that. My understanding of it is that it lessens the degree of the spread, but it absolutely does not prevent the spread.
1: And so how much is your impression of it lessening?
0: Well, that some of the larger particles will get caught in the mask. However, lots of the smaller particles are still coming through if we're operating under the assumption of the virus being spread that
1: way. Exactly. And that's the assumption that some folks are operating under, but that's not what the science shows. Um, So,
0: Talk about what you know about what the science shows.
1: Well, so the CDC website itself, which I'll find that that in a moment. Um, Let's see. The CDC website people can go to that's looking at whether it's spread through the air. It's called Scientific Brief, sars cov 2 and potential airborne transmission on the CDC. And if anybody has trouble finding any of these references, they can contact me, you know, through the vtmasksurvey.com website. But this one, they say what an airborne transmittable virus is, you know, how it works, da-da-da. It goes on and on, describing what that is, not saying that this one is airborne, but just explaining the definition and everything. But what it explains is that Were SARS-CoV-2 spread primarily through airborne transmission like measles, experts would expect to have observed considerably more rapid global spread of infection in early 2020 and higher percentages of prior infection measured by sero surveys. Available data indicate that SARS-CoV-2 has spread more like other common respiratory viruses primarily through respiratory droplet transmission within a short range of less than six feet. And so what they're saying is that it's not airborne, which has been a commonly perpetuated theory. When we're talking about healthy people wearing them, right, because the amount of virus that you admit as a healthy person who's infected but doesn't know it, you're emitting a certain amount of virus out of your body because your body is fighting it, right? And so it's, it's kicking it out through your breath. It's never been proven that you would breathe out enough of that, you know, that another person could inhale it and get it that way. And if you look at the CDC website about masks and why are masks used, which I can find that source here, Scientific Briefs Community Use of Cloth Masks to Control the Spread of SARS-CoV-2. This is off the CDC website. Okay, so they list 45 sources as evidence that the masks work. And please keep in mind, I'm not saying this. This is not my opinion, Antonio. This is what the World Health Organization means when they say that high quality or direct scientific evidence does not exist. We have a lot of studies and things that look at, like, what you're saying, the amount of droplets, okay? But, But we've never proven that someone else can inhale enough of them to get sick from a healthy person. We do have a couple of studies that have looked at like in an emergency room waiting room where symptomatic people are you know if you look at those studies they are studying symptomatic people a lot of the time so that's something to keep in mind that's a whole different thing if someone is coughing and sneezing and then you have a room where there are a lot of those kinds of people could there be you know yes i mean the science is looking into that you know it's still not conclusive but that's why we have ventilation systems in hospitals you know specially designed we keep you know, the oxygen levels a tiny bit higher. We keep them cold. You know, it's all specially, you know, designed for concentrated amounts. But when we're talking about, you know, healthy people in a room, you know, who should be staying home when they're sick anyway, there really is no clear evidence. Most of these forty-five sources that the CDC cites as their evidence, most of them say right in in the body that evidence is lacking and more research is needed. You know, they're just trying to contribute. And most of them are not peer-reviewed studies. And there are other flaws, like six of the studies include other strategies in the mix. And they're combining strategies such as hand-washing, distancing, lockdowns, you know, and masks. So when you do that kind of, you you can't tease out, I mean, they try to mathematically, but, you know, you're basing that on what? Since we don't have conclusive evidence yet to know their benefit, you know, it's really hard to do a model that will will help you tease that out. And then 10 of those 45 studies are not high quality evidence, you know, according to the, the CDC, World Health Organization, and everyone else, because they're mathematical models.
0: We've been going through this now for almost a year, and what you're saying seems to indicate that there's a lack of understanding of what is really happening and how the virus is transmitted and how best to mitigate the spread of it. Especially considering that they're not sure how it's transmitted
1: yeah, and you know all along we've been having advice from World Health Organization and and others you know the eu and, and the World Health Organization are calling for you know ends to shutdowns they're finding that you know it's doubling hunger you know so when you talk about you know fear and panic, people don't seem to be keeping in mind that most people die of hunger you know and starvation is
0: Not something, yeah, (laughs) but we don't see it on the news, you know. And also, your experience in the health field, you also well know the effect of stress on our immune system and our health, and that unusual levels of stress make us even more vulnerable to disease, disease, and whatever is going
1: around. Right, exactly. That was actually the first thing I thought of, you know, was how cancers can be increased and heart disease, but not only that, like the stress on our immune systems, you know, because I looked into it a little bit and found out that actually when people are, you know, under that kind of stress, like with trauma, they actually don't get sick for a while because, you know, they might be super healthy, you know, because their immune system is in overdrive, you know, enemy, 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 you know, like you're in overdrive and your immune system takes that on. And it's after when they start to heal, um, you know, when they can let their guard down, that they can have quite a crash you know And one thing that made me think of is you know now that the whole like you were saying it's in the beginning that the trauma is widespread now you know it's global to these 1.5 billion children who went through lockdown to their parents the adults everybody leaders you know in these situations having to make these decisions you know school board members <laughs> and select board members you know employers they're being asked to make these decisions about whether to use these masks you know how to respond And, you know, the stress of that, I think once we we should be maybe paying attention here is that once things, for whatever reason, are resolved, whatever that will look like, you know, at least to a point where people can kind of, you know, take a breath if that happens, we should be prepared because there could be a big cascade of health crises because then your immune system, you know, can go, okay, let's start dealing with the damage that we've done through this whole stressful event. And the longer it goes on, probably the worse. I mean, I'm guessing. You know, I don't have the research to prove it, right? I could find it, probably. But you and I know, without needing to do that research, that's the sacred purpose I'm trying to get back to with science here, is its sacred purpose. We're losing that. We're jumping on with fear and, like, a rough shot approach where we're just, you know, give me anything, you know? And people literally have said, whatever it takes, whatever damage these masks are doing, it doesn't matter. Because the threat is so high. And I think, wow, you know, like, I hate to use this graphic example, but, you know, if you put a plastic bag on your head and on the kids' heads, that will 100%
0: stop the spread of COVID. Right, and one of the things that makes us so susceptible to that kind of irrational and very limited thinking is the effect of trauma, because trauma essentially in a situation of panic or near panic is that it freezes our system. It freezes our nervous system and the brain is the largest part of our nervous system. So it's shutting down our brain and it freezes us with what limited amount of information we've been bombarded with. And throughout most of this pandemic, we've been bombarded by wear a mask and how people get stuck on like the loudest voice, kind of like the way uh, Trump supporters are just locking on to everything that Trump and his ilk are telling them. And they're basically acting out of fear. They've shut down all of their rational thinking around the information they're getting from like Fox News or Trump himself. And there's no room for any other information to get through. Their defensive systems have literally locked down and all they're operating upon is the information that they've been getting and what little they'll continue to allow through through the narrow channels that they'll allow through because they're so afraid of the rest of the world and everybody else in it. And I think many of us are doing the same thing in response to the pandemic.
1: Yeah, I mean, any any media messages right now that are, you know, beating the fear drumbeat and consistently beating that drumbeat, I don't think they're considering, you know, the health effects of that.
0: Um, right. And any. they don't talk about it. Like, all this talk about wearing masks and stay six feet apart and no social gatherings, nobody's talking about the effects, you know, the stress effects, the trauma effects of this. and. This is one of the actual cornerstones of this whole issue.
1: Yeah, and it's yeah, it's probably the biggest result
0: of the whole. I think it's what makes us all the most susceptible to all of this because most of us carry these viruses in our bodies all the time. Of course there are new mutations, new strains that appear, but we pick them up along the way and the viruses lay dormant in our system until something triggers them, which is usually stress, or our bodies being run down, we're really tired, all of which are related to stress, whether it's physical stress, emotional stress, psychological stress, which are all forms of crisis, things that freeze our system, whether it's our immune system, our cognitive system. It's all very interesting and fascinating stuff But when we're in a crisis, in a pandemic, we tend to shut our focus way down onto manageable bites or what we think are manageable bites, and that can really shut out a lot of critical elements that we should be considering.
1: Yeah, that point made me think of what happens when, you know, physiologically when we're under stress, you know, we get tunnel vision.
0: Mm-hmm. Exactly. And they've proven that physiologically.
1: Yeah. So like, you know, your, the horror movie, you know, they're running to the car, you know, and they're dropping their keys and you lose your fine motor skills. You you lose your ability to think so that you can handle, you know, the situation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that, that is happening, you know, across the board. And when I was researching the effects of video games and things on kids, I attended a, a training with Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman. He's a military professional and his position was to teach police officers and military personnel to kill, you know, if the time came to be able to do that, you know, and how to do that successfully. <laughs> and, you know, so he, un- he studied war, he understands, you know, and his, his main theme was that humans don't want to kill. You know, this is not something we want to do. We have to be manipulated into it. And it turns out that, you know, practicing in video games that's why it was the military that invented them, you know, is actually a really, really effective way to teach people how to do that. Right. Um, Because you give them the skill and the will. You know, they just have that boom, that reflex. They see a a man-shaped silhouette. You know, they could even practice shooting zombies. You know, it doesn't matter what they're practicing on in the video game.
0: And that's the way they do drone strikes, because nobody ever actually sees another human being in reality. They, They never get a close enough view to see their humanity.
1: Right, and I don't know if anyone's been following. Uh, I came across a website the other day. It's Oh, I forget what organization is putting it out there. But it keeps a record of the presidents and months and drone strikes. Yeah, so th- this is the military of the future. And, but not only does violent media increase our willingness to kill, I mean, that's actually the least you know, likely effect. You know, some people will be more likely to be aggressive, but most people, interestingly, will become less sensitive to others and more afraid and, you know, increased sense of fear that, that is, the world is this terrible place and people are out to get me, you know, and things like that. And so I was thinking about masks and Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman and I looked him up the other day and sure enough he's written about masks because in his research masks, I'll just quote him this first sentence here, masks give a powerful sense of anonymity to the killer and dehumanize the victim, you know, and so then he goes on and explains how we know that You know, that's why they put hoods on their hostages and why they blindfold you when you get, you know, shot, you know, executed. It's not so much for you, (laughs) you know. It's for the the person pulling the trigger. It Mm -hmm. makes them more likely to do that. And so what we could be doing right now, too, Tonio, I'm sad to bring this up, we could be greatly increasing violence and aggression. And not only that, but just people being willing to turn away and not assist, you know, the bystander effect and we're dehumanizing each other, mm-hmm. you know, on a mass scale. Like, when I go into town, I don't recognize my neighbors. You know, I don't know who these people are. Because of the mass, it's hard to tell. And, you know, domestic violence is on the rise. And when abuse victims go in a store, and, you know, I, I worked so much with people who had, re- you know, had to have restraining orders and things. Some, a lot of them were just even afraid to get restraining orders. They're so afraid of these people. Well, now they're walking into stores, and they don't know. If that's their abuser behind them, you know, well, they're tall, they have dark hair, or is it their brother-in-law, who I'm also afraid of, or, you know, or whatever, <laughs> you know, so we have different ways of coping with stress, we have the fight and flight, you know, which it turns out, um, the tending instinct, Have you, I don't know if you've ever read that book it's a woman who researched you know she found out that most of these studies that they've been doing not just about stress and our effects but all other things too you know were mostly being done on men you know Mm -hmm, not including women in the studies so she started to include women in the studies of stress and fear and she found that women not only you know can freeze or fight or flee you know but they also have more of a tendency men have this too but they had a more noticeable to where they they noticed it tendency to befriend people, you know, so to build allies, to look around and go, okay, I'm in this situation, who can help me, you know, and look around, and then also to attend, which means to take care of others. We have an instinct to, oh, there's a lion, so what's her first thought, where's the baby? Or we're, you know, being attacked, whatever's happening that's, you know, that's dangerous, who needs help? You know, that we have these other instincts, too, and masks and distancing and lockdowns keep us from doing those things so we're not healing we're not able to respond you know it's it's kind of weird that we're not being asked to assist with the problems we know we're being told from the media not only are they certain you know what the problem is what the biggest problem is but they're certain of the way to handle it and there is no one size fit all with this first of all and second of all we need all hands on deck you know we need all of us with any experience in these fields i know therapists are being overwhelmed right now totally overwhelmed you know they, they can't see the number of people they need to see existing issues are worsened and then we have this whole new flood of new issues you know like the study from germany i mean the number of kids you know that are exhibiting psychological distress new fears you know a quarter of them on average have new fears <laughs> that they didn't have and they're not getting you know services at school as much you know because the
0: school days are
1: shortened and all that and We need all hands on deck. We need Mm -hmm. everybody to pitch
0: in. One thing we didn't cover or go into at all, and I don't necessarily think that we're going to have any answers for it, but I think we should at least address it because we have kind of opened up Pandora's box about questioning the established approach to the pandemic and the virus. What is your best understanding of how it spreads?
1: Yes, I love your phrase, established approach, because, let's be honest, it's dangerous for us to question that right
0: Mm -hmm.
1: now. Um, And that in itself, you know,
0: I think speaks volumes. And, you know, through the effect of trauma, it freezes the mechanism of science. It locks the essential purpose of science, it locks that out. And to me, the essential element of science is curiosity and discovery. Yes which requires open-mindedness. And if we are in a psychological lockdown around science, then we've created a situation that is inherently unscientific. It's become rigid, which to me is the opposite of science. It's more like religion than science, because it's dogma as opposed to discovery. So. That said. Thank you for saying
1: that. Just you say, I mean, really, this is a healing moment for me right now. (laughs) I mean, seriously.
0: And I love science, and I can tell from listening to you that you love science as well. And we should all love science because it's a wonderful approach to the magic of life and this amazing, wondrous, and, and infinite universe.
1: Exactly. And, you know, one thing I wrote down that I was going to mention was the definition of the scientific method, you know, because I've had to look that up because people have, of course, pushed back on me doing the survey. You know, I get responses from people who are like, you know, listen to the science. You know, it, you're right, it's become the science has become a dogma. And so, I've, you know, I've had to look this up. The scientific method is systematic observation and experiment. The formulation, testing, and modification of hypothesis. Remember that word? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Criticism is the backbone of scientific method. We always try to prove our hypothesis wrong. You know, we not only try to repeat results, which none of the studies that the CDC references to say that masks are effective do that. None of them can repeat their results. You know, people bring up things like, you know, the restaurant study study and the choir study, and I really encourage people to look that up. It's really easy to do. You just Google choir study COVID. You know, I mean, it's so famous by now, the Washington Choir Study, which one person who attended this gathering, which you, you you can read it, it was published in the CDC newsletter.
0: But can you summarize it briefly?
1: Yeah, sure. It's really interesting to ask people, what do you think, you know, the choir study said, because, you know, people have an idea in their head of how, like, certain it was. But the fact of the matter is that what we know you know which this was not actually a study this was an event that happened so we don't know how many people walking into this room you know a already had the virus right b you know were exhibiting symptoms and didn't report them but we know that one person at least had symptoms oh and these were all you know people well up there in age you know and many of the people who got sick had pre-existing conditions you know and all that sort of stuff Um, but quite a number of them did get sick you know that is true quite a number of them did get quite sick you know and this was early on in, in the, the breakout in the united states in the spring but one person was symptomatic and they had choir practice more than once they stacked chairs together they ate oranges and had snacks <laughs> they passed around papers you know i mean like there were surface contacts so see this is the biggest problem with these studies is you know what we know and what even the cdc says on their website you know that i read to you earlier is that it's surface contacts you know, that's how viruses spread. That's how most respiratory viruses spread. And it's usually from a symptomatic person. You know, can asymptomatic people spread COVID? That's up to debate, you know, and that evidence, which is included in some of these studies here, are mathematical models or population studies, you know. And so I've looked at those models and they're either randomly attaching two people who happen to walk through a square during the day and both tested positive you know, they're not conclusive. And, you know, models are a certain type of research that can be helpful, but you'll never be able to put enough into a mathematical model, especially when you don't know enough about a situation, you know, to come out with a certain response. You know, they'll tell you right in it that this should not be used to make decisions. So we have problems with is it spread by asymptomatic people. So we have this person at the choir who is symptomatic. They're coughing. They're touching surfaces. Someone else comes along, touches that surface, and then eats an orange, you know, without washing their hands or rubs their nose, right? Is there enough virus in that symptomatic person's droplets that the next person could pick it up and get it in their body through an opening, you know? Yes, you know, and that's why um, COVID has a reproductive number of about 2.4 because it is spread through surfaces, and that's what the CDC says, you know, and that's what the research shows. And then we can have lots of studies also about the droplets and how many people emit when they talk or sing and how many will the mask catch, you know. And so CDC cites for their evidence of masks, they cite 28 of these kinds of studies that are all based on droplet transmission. Well, some of them are looking at symptomatic examples, first of all. And second of all, we've never proven you know, through anything but these mathematical models, that two people in the same room can get it by standing near each other or even being in the room, right? And that's why the World Health Organization does recommend one meter distance, one meter from symptomatic people. Now, you know, none of this means that masks don't work under certain conditions. They work for what they were made for. You know, if you're in the face of someone else who is symptomatic and it's likely that they might, you know, cough and get enough on you or, because you're in their face and they're coughing. You know, there may be enough in the air around you that you could breathe it in, and that mask will help with that. But,
0: but that's also, what it's for. And also there's a long-standing tradition of surgeons wearing masks when they're doing operations on people.
1: Right, and I cite a couple of those studies in my fall report, which I would encourage people to go and look and read the sources because if you read them, you'll see that they wear those masks not for aerosolized particles. They wear them for the splashing and the fact that they might cough, you know, and they're going to turn away and catch it in their, you know, shoulder, but it's they're used for a different purpose. So it is complicated a little bit, and you do have to do some of your own research, but you have to realize that A has never been proven, therefore B, you know, <laughs> doesn't make sense.
0: It's all complicated, in and other words.
1: Somewhat on purpose. I mean, I, I find it suspicious that when you go to the CDC's website about, potential airborne transmission you know and they spend the whole page talking about what is airborne transmission and then just in there point out that it's mostly spread through respiratory droplet transmission within a short range which what they mean by that is you're in that contact range and the only thing we've proven is with a symptomatic person and so if I can just tell you the most obvious evidence because I don't want to forget to say that because you know a lot of this you really do have to read, and i so encourage. I mean, to me, the red flag here is that we are not being encouraged to look into this stuff. We're being told one solution, right? But people really need to look into this. I am encouraging people to look into it themselves. Don't, you know, just trust me. Don't do that. Don't, Don't trust, trust
0: anybody. anybody. Exactly. Right. Exactly.
1: <laughs> right. Um, and so if I could just explain to you a really simple concept, it's called the reproductive number. Okay, so viruses and, and contagious diseases have... A reproductive number, and that's how many people an infected person is likely to infect, you know, how many other people. And so you can look this up on Wikipedia and you can see what the reproductive number of various viruses are. And for them to be aerosolized, for them to be contagious through the air, things like measles and chickenpox, they have an RO number of 10 or more because that's, you know, a person who can spread it through the air. And they're generally talking about symptomatic people in these cases anyway. But if you can spread it through the air, then 10 or more people will get infected by one person. And if you look at the RO number for the flu, the common flu, it's typically under two. You know, so it's one point something usually. And then if you look at the established, this has been established from the very beginning and it has not changed in the research, the RO number for COV2. (laughs) What would be your
0: guess, Tonio? What do you think? Well... You said it earlier, I think you said it was 2.4. Oh, yeah. Oh, good job. <laughs> and I've heard that in the media over and over again.
1: Yeah, so there it is. And you can find this quote all over the place. It's through contact, you know, surface context. And the studies that they use to try, you know, please go look at those 45 studies. That's what all they've got. And the number has grown because I've been watching this, this site, you know, and, and what they're listing for evidence for masks. And I have been watching it since the spring. And it started out with like 14 or something, you know, and I've read them all. And other people have. And that's why the World Health Organization and other people say there is not, you know, high quality or direct scientific evidence, you know, and and we may be wrong.
0: We We usually are, right. We almost always find out down the road that we were wrong, at least to some degree, because one thing that has been tried and true in the realm of science is that Science, you know, established science is continually being overthrown by the next discovery, the next level of insight and ability to understand what's true.
1: Exactly. I mean, let's not forget that during the Spanish flu, you know, after World War I, it turns out that probably aspirin is what killed most, possibly most. I mean, estimates are impossible to give at this point. But when people take aspirin, when they have a fever their lungs will fill up with fluid most likely, you know, in many cases, and they will die of what looks like pneumonia. Well, it turns out that the Spanish flu, which originally out, you know, had outbreaks amongst young men and children, which was really unusual for all those populations to die so quickly of it, it turns out that the prescribed, you know, the amount that was recommended by the Army Corps, you know, the Army Medical Group, the British Medical Association, and the bottle that you bought you know the, the aspirin bottle itself were toxic doses for children, and they had no like, like you'd not only get a toxic dose, but you'd get it. It didn't tell you how many times to give that to a person. So people thought that you know aspirin was the miracle drug back then, you know, because Bayer had some great you know advertising and stuff, and they had just lost their patent on it. So there were all these aspirin producers at the time, and so everybody was grabbing. You know, probably the price came down too. You know, and so here you've got this loved one or this person in a hospital and they're dying of this flu and it's horrifying and you want to just pump them full of what you think will help right (laughs)
0: Mm -hmm. and if something is good give them more of it
1: right and it's not working give them more you know oh no they're dying quicker you know give them more i mean you i could see we're in fear you know and and people can look that up we're doing this right now you know with the e-cigarettes we're letting people i mean don't get me started on the number of things that we're doing that we really, we could think harder about them and probably come to a better result.
0: And I think it's really important to reiterate that this is your field of public health, and this is what you're interested and passionate about.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's why things like, you know, is there enough aerosolized particles in the air from a healthy person who is infected but is, you know, not having symptoms, another person to get it, you know, I mean, I teach HIV prevention, so, you know, kids are always asking, and, you know, HIV, is it in saliva? And it turns out that there is HIV in saliva if the person is HIV positive, but you'd have to drink a bathtub full of it to get enough of their saliva to get infected. So, you know, the quantity is important.
0: And that is the case with SARS-CoV-2 as well.
1: Right. And, you know, they'll say that. It's interesting because, you know, some of these circumstantial evidence type studies, you know, that are talking about how much the mask and stuff, they'll use that phrase, they'll say, and quantity does matter, you know, it does matter.
0: And can you explain why quantity matters in this case? Because I think probably most of us have a hard time conceiving why that would be the case, or maybe it's all too easy to conceive why that's the case.
1: Yeah, I mean, I believe it's because our system can handle it you know, we are tuned to this. this, That's what our bodies do. And that it wouldn't be enough, even if those few were able to do a few reproductions, it's not enough to overwhelm or cause, you know, systemic disease.
0: So it's like you just need a larger army of the virus to penetrate our, our defensive system.
1: Yeah, viruses are so small. I mean, that's the other thing, you know. I mean, the New York Post put out this animation of the particles floating around these people. You can watch it. It's why masks work.
0: You know, and
1: it shows, you you know, these particles in the air. It's like you can't see, you know, viruses are so small. You know, getting back to HIV, I mean, if someone's not using a latex condom, you know, another question I'd get is, will saran wrap work? You know, it's like, well, no, because, you know, unless that plastic is pretty thick and has been melted, you know, the latex factor, the viruses are going to slip through the holes in the plastic. You know, I mean, that's small. You know, they're so small we didn't discover them for a long time. Mm -hmm. You know, even with microscopes. I mean, so to conceive of, okay, there's 50 million of them, I mean, what does that mean? That's still nothing. I mean, compared to the vast space of your body, you know, not just your own blood system, you know, and lymph nodes, but, like, of the room around you. And when people are outside and worried that they're going to catch it through the air, I mean, just, I don't think people understand Mm-hmm. They
0: just don't understand space and stuff. Well, there's so much that we don't understand. Yeah. And, you know, we take in a little bit of information that we hear somewhere, and because there's nothing to counter it, we assume that's the truth without questioning it or without realizing that we have the opportunity to question it. We don't use the scientific method on it.
1: Exactly.
0: So, well, perhaps to open up a whole nother can of worms... Well, actually, let me, let me give you the choice. Should we go back to talking about the effects all this is having on children, or do you want to talk about the, the approach of using vaccines to address the virus? Because one of my concerns about vaccines, which are generally administered through injection, is that Bruce Lipton, who's a pretty well-known geneticist and biologist, he says that our immune system is designed to deal with viruses and all of these type of things, but our, our main defense is in our throat. Our tonsils are designed to identify new things that enter into our body, and then to signal our nervous system and our immune system to what it is, which triggers a cascade of responses eventually leading to the actual immune response, and that if these things bypass that natural immune response system, that our body doesn't really effectively learn how to defend itself. And he makes this point that injected vaccines, injected remedies like that do an end around our immune system and are highly suspect. And this is coming from a highly trained, well-respected biologist and geneticist who studies these things.
1: Yeah, well, you know, the concerns that well-respected people in the field have been raising about all these things is endless. I mean, I've been developing a list. I've got a list going. If anybody wants it, you know, let me know and I'll send it to you. You know, go to the website. You know, we listen to a lot of voices and do our own research. There's, you know, a lot of information out there. And my bottom line really is that we need to have choice, you know, about all these things.
0: Although, in our current political environment, that whole notion has been completely poisoned because there's an immense backlash on the notion of everybody having their own opinions and making their own choices about what is real and what's not real, what's fact or what's not fact. So it's all getting very, very muddied.
1: Yeah, and kind of poisoned right down to the root, you know, because, Mm -hmm. like, as an advocate, you know, for people who had experienced trauma, sexual and domestic violence, you know, our first rule was you give as much choice back to the person. You know, not that it was in our power to give it back, you know, but even little things, you know, making sure that that person was feeling more and more empowered and, you know, was free to make every decision that they, you know, to have more control basically control back of their environment of their autonomy of what happens you know that's why we wouldn't of course insist on making a report to the police because you know that should be their choice there's a whole cascade of things to consider you know so any choices that were taken away actually compounded the trauma you know so we're sort of in this cycle now of yeah just um i don't know when it's gonna stop you know like with the masks i mean there should be exemptions you know the governor's mandate outlines exemptions you know the box itself of masks says you know if you experience difficulty breathing remove the mask and that's the most common complaint you know is difficulty breathing and and there's good science behind that you know there are over three decades of studies of healthcare providers wearing masks and what the effects on them have been and there have been concerns there are concerns about those surgeons in the operating rooms. I mean, that's why I cite them in my mask survey, you know, fall report, because, you know, they're concerned. Are these surgeons going to make more mistakes because they're feeling overheated? They're having difficulty breathing, you know, these concerns. And mm-hmm. if a surgeon who is, you know, somewhat able-bodied, healthy, in a controlled environment that's air conditioned and, you know, not physically exerting at all, if they need special consideration and they're actually looking at whether the masks are... They're doing a cost-risk-benefit analysis, you
0: know. And they're using the thinnest masks available.
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, they're specially designed, and so that gets back to these studies that I first contacted you about, some of the issues, you know, the concerns of that German study of the children, the surveys, you know, they're concerned about the, the materials and the type being used, these cloth masks, these fashion masks or whatever. They've never been studied, you know. We don't know, you know, and so we have teenagers And not only teenagers, but young kids, you know, developing all kinds of skin irritations and breakouts. You know, and just talking about the immune system, anytime you have a break in the skin, you now have another opening, right, that germs and bacteria can get in. And the mask is warm and humid. And I cite countless studies, and there are countless out there, you know, where they are concerned about that in healthcare settings.
0: It's a breeding ground.
1: Yeah, that it, right, that it's spreading it. And these are with people who are trained in how to wear them, can change them frequently, wash their hands frequently, and are in a sterile environment. You know, they're not in a school, you know, <laughs> or wherever. And, and I am concerned that, you know, low-income people are being dramatically impacted. You know, because if you think about, you know, sitting at your desk with a mask on or whatever is one thing, but doing any type of physical exertion, and that that's what they study in these, these studies of healthcare workers you know any amount of exertion is going to greatly increase the problems you know a lot of the problem is the breathing issue which is not something to belittle you know difficulty breathing you know that there is a higher CO2 concentration and a lower oxygen concentration underneath the masks than OSHA standards allow you know of the masks they studied now like we were just saying we haven't even studied the kinds that people are using, you know, and people are being told that the tighter the mask, the better, right? Because it comes, you know, your breath comes out the sides, and it's like, well, of course your breath comes out the, sides. you know, and of course you're you're trying to breathe out these viruses for a reason. You know, there are all kinds of complications, and these are serious concerns. I know, shoot, the messengers could happen here, right? Don't you? Know, I mean, people could be really mad at me right now.
0: Well, I don't think you're saying these. Things. I don't think you've said anything that's that controversial. I think we've both listened to things that are far more controversial, but we're not even going that far down the rabbit hole.
1: No, this is all, I mean, I go to the sources, you know,
0: I mean, you know... This this is is on the, you're saying this is on the websites of the CDC and the World Health Organization.
1: Yeah, and and where do they come to those conclusions? You know, I mean, look at those studies. You know, I wouldn't even, I'm not saying trust those guys, you know, 100% either. I'm just saying you know, look, and and when they do present evidence, when anybody presents evidence, even in these studies, you know, that I look at, they reference studies, right? And so, you know, if they make a statement, like, you know, spread through various particles, well, how do they know that? You know, look it up. And interestingly, a lot of the media statements, and this is across the board, this is, you know, New York Times, you know, you go to to check their sources, and it's really interesting. (laughs) I mean, please, I, I challenge people, find evidence, that this is wrong you know because that's what the scientists of the world have been working on through this whole crisis and please participate please become a citizen scientist yourself and or even just follow up on one factoid you know one statement that you hear you know if masks could have prevented you know 70,000 deaths or whatever you know okay why are they saying that you know just just look it up that's really what I encourage people to do because right now it's almost like allegations or circumstantial evidence. You know, we, we wouldn't mm-hmm. let hearsay hold up in court. You know, and mm-hmm. here we are with so much at stake.
0: And also, you need to have a, a point-counterpoint approach to this as well. If you're just getting information from one side of the argument, you have nothing to compare it to, nothing to really think about. Right. And it's not scientific, and there's there's a lot of very interesting information out there by well-known, including Nobel Prize-winning virologists, who have some very interesting and contrary perspectives on what is being disseminated through the mainstream media and I and I know you share this opinion that everyone should look at all sides of maybe not all sides but but take a broad perspective of things listen to things that you don't that you wouldn't necessarily agree with just so you at least understand where other people are coming from and perhaps perhaps you'll actually learn something new from it that you were just categorically blocking out
1: right the, i mean it's kind of like with with the way we're being encouraged you know to fear each other to fear our neighbors to feel to hate you know feel hatred you know towards groups of people i mean the stereotyping that's going on on all sides and levels, you know, and it kind of gets back to, you know, the empathy. I mean, I feel like there is way more agreement between left and right right now on all sides of all debates, but people aren't even looking for that, you know, and and we can find that.
0: You you mean we actually share a lot more in common than we appear to be on the surface.
1: Right. I mean, if you understood what someone who believes differently, if you understood why they believe, why they feel the way they do. I mean,
0: people have good reasons. And what they're really concerned about.
1: Yeah, and Inst- you'll find out they're concerned about exactly the same. Exactly. You know? They just
0: um, use different terms for it, and they're looking in different corners for their evidence.
1: And we're looking for the flaws exactly. on, the other, you know, on the people we don't agree with instead exactly. of the scientific method actually says. We we're need looking to look f- at our
0: own. We're looking specifically for the differences and what divides us as opposed to what we have in common. And as you said, we have so much more in common than what divides us. And yet there are so many people that are just focusing and amping up our differences.
1: Yeah, and I think we all want healthy communities and healthy people and happy, happy children. I mean, you know, the kids are less happy, you know, (laughs) that affects your immune system. Exactly.
0: We, We want a peaceful world to live in.
1: And, you know, it all comes back to the children. I mean, I wasn't able to study them, you know, do surveys of children. I had to stick with adults, which is fine. There's enough there. But I was so grateful to see this German study or survey because, you know, they are shaping our future. I mean, whatever they grow up believing, how they grow up behaving, you know, the risks of increased aggression and fear and desensitization are huge, you know. And what everybody's basically asking for in the scientific and medical community is to do a cost-benefit analysis, you know, a real one, you know, and we'll never know all the costs. I mean, the costs are just go on and on, you know, and then addressing them.
0: And there's this other very unfortunate thing that really disturbs me is that even though there's so much lip service to our care of our children, our society really dismisses our children to a huge degree. I mean... We're essentially robbing our children of their future in almost everything we do in the world, and we disregard what they have to say. We don't listen to them. We think they're too young, that don't know anything, that we are the experts, and that they should be listening to us, and yet we're the ones who've been screwing up the world.
1: Yeah. You know, and, and elders, too, you know, kind of similarly, you know, ignoring and what they're going through, you know, through all of this is just horrifying, and uh-huh. I don't know if people are aware there was a frontline nurses press conference that happened last week that probably people didn't catch, and these nurses were explaining situations, you know, involving elders, involving women giving birth with masks on, and then women, you know, not, not just women in maternity wards, although this was this one nurse's testimony was about that, but, you know, pretty much anybody who's in the hospital right now can't have, you know, you can only have one visitor you know, where there's very strict rules, and so people are in the hospital, you know, first of all, kids are not able to see their mother or whomever, so say a woman gives birth, her other children don't see her, you know, so say there's, you know, they're not able to visit through the whole process, and then let's say there's a complication, and the baby needs to be kept for a while, um, the mother's alone there, she gets to pick like one support person, but, you know, for possibly weeks you know, these things are happening, you know, I mean, that's just one little example, but to me, a big one, you know, mm-hmm. as far as our hearts and the children, we're, we're bringing them into this world, and is it sensible, you know, is this, you know, we we need to be um, at least hearing these stories, you know, and, and accounting for this
0: somehow. Mm-hmm. And for many years to come, there are going to be studies coming out about the children of this pandemic.
1: Yeah, I know, I'm so sad you know, teenagers are a special category um, that this German study kind of points out. And, you know, it was interesting, if I have just a minute, I thought you'd appreciate this example, that something I came across recently, right before this whole pandemic, I think it was last fall, I was covering, you know, eating disorders and issues with the kids. And one of them recommended this woman who does an animated blog called Jaden Animation. And she had this really great video about eating disorders and really covered the topic, you know, really well. From her point of view, it's a really great video. But she also, on her site, has one about face reveal. And she talks about this concept that the kids are all into this, and I had no idea, but face reveal is when, you know, the kids now are putting more and more animation online, and they're shy about showing their actual face. And so there's this concept of face reveal, you know. And so I was just thinking about that. I don't know. I mean, you know, just looking at that aspect related to the mask, you know, and how this whole trend amongst the youth has been, you know, this movement towards a faceless, identityless, or dishonest 2D image of themselves, you know, because now we have all these filters that you can use and the kids are using them. You know, I was looking at a video a young woman had and I couldn't even recognize her. There's like an app or something people can do with their phones now where they'll thin your cheeks. You know, they'll do what they do, you know, in Photoshopping, but it does it automatically, and it does it to moving pictures. You know, so, you know, we've had that ability to do that, you know, in movies and stuff for a long time, but now people can do it on their phones. So people are actually filming themselves, and they're actually, they prefer that version. These are adults, too, you know, but especially youth. You know, they actually prefer that version of themselves.
0: What a a toxic notion.
1: And so the shyness, like now we're hiding their face, you know, cases i was already worried about kids staring at their phones all the time i mean this was already like a huge problem that we were definitely fighting upstream to try to address and yeah. now you know now where are we yeah. you know we've got kids at home on video games all night you know the video game addiction problem and now at least they would have to get up for school in the morning so they would get a you know they'd get some sleep and get away from their video game but when we sent them home You know, I was just like, oh, no, here we go. You know, the kids are going to be playing 24-7 now, you know, to stop them, you know, and they lose sleep, they don't eat well.
0: But I hear that not all of the video game realm is toxic or bad, that there's some good stuff in that realm.
1: Mm hmm No, I'm definitely an advocate for, you know, it really has to do with the content. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, there's a famous quote, you know, all television is educational television. The question is, what is it teaching? Exactly you know, I use that stuff all the time for educate. you know, I think that's it's super useful, it's just we've got to really keep an eye on, you know, the message what is the message, and especially you know, the message that we believe, you know, we should, we should be questioning these things, especially in this world where, you know there's a lot of money to be made yeah. you know, where there's money follow uh-huh. the money
0: <laughs> So what you're speaking to is critical thinking and being really serious about it, and that's one of the things that That's disappearing from our schools. People are not being trained to think critically. People are being trained to listen to authority.
1: For tomorrow's workforce. Exactly. I mean, what I would, you know, these were my lessons for media literacy. It was like, ask yourself, who made this message? What is it saying? You know, how does that message relate to the real world? You know, so if the message is be very, very afraid all the time, You know, so that everywhere you go, you'll see reminders that we're in a pandemic, you know, and that people are dying of this one thing. And so we have to be reminded all the time, you know, what is that doing to us? And what are we willing to do now that we're in this state of fear? And so, you know, just thinking clearly, I mean, I know people sometimes have a hard time hearing these kinds of things. But if I can just mention that secondhand tobacco smoke on our planet kills 600,000 people a year, you know, that's just secondhand smoke. If we include, you know, actual smoking, we were talking 6 million people every single year. Yet, you know, the kids would always ask me, why are cigarettes legal, Ms., you know, Ms. Hornblatt? <laughs> you know, this doesn't make sense. Why don't we just stop selling cigarettes? You know, they're watching their loved ones be harmed by them. And I would say because people have freedom of choice, you know. We're right back to the benefit-risk analysis, right, for their You know, we're balancing the restriction of freedoms against this health benefit, you know, Mm -hmm. and we're right back where we started. You know, that's what what it all kind of comes down to is being able to do that, you know, realistically. I mean, you know, what do you think if if smoking kills six million people every single year? And this is after we've worked hard on this issue, right? So we know that we've lost way more than this over time. You know, there have been years where way more people died of it. But if right now or before the pandemic, this has probably doubled now because, smoking is doubling. But before the pandemic, six million people were dying directly from smoking and another 600,000 from secondhand smoke. What do you think? Should it be legal?
0: Well, I think if people really want to smoke, they're going to find a way to do it. So I'm not a fan of prohibition, Mm -hmm. particularly. I think that people should be, you know, in school, should be taught to think, to think deeply and to think broadly. Mm -hmm. And I think if people were at least fairly well educated, they would be less likely to do things that are self-destructive. However, it's much more complicated than that because most people in our culture, in our country, and in the world at large, are highly traumatized by many different things. So there's a lot more that we need to be educated about. We need to learn how to take care of ourselves physically, emotionally, psychologically. We need to understand so much more about our basic humanity than we are being taught you know life 101 we don't get any of that in school Mm
1: -hmm. we get
0: stem we get abcs we get common core we get left behind or no child left behind or or head start or political gamesmanship approaches to education which was set up as a kind of industrialized warehousing of children to get them out of adults' hair and to train them to be good workers and consumers. So I feel very strongly that our education system is a tremendous failure in so many ways. My experience in school, at its best, was I enjoyed school for the social aspect of school, to be able to be around other kids and to interact with them. What I actually learned in school was minuscule by comparison. Most of what I learned in school was irrelevant. Some things I enjoyed and many things I hated, but I don't think I learned much in school, to be honest. Most of what I actually learned was from what I did independently, the reading I did, my engagement in the world, my interactions with adults and other kids. That's where real education comes from, but we have Institutionalized education much as we have institutionalized religion and distorted it and made it essentially unreal.
1: Right, and turned it on its head, you know, like you were saying, the most beneficial parts for you, you felt, were the, you know, the unstructured parts, you know. Exactly. And, and like Leanne Gray was, was talking about, you know, those are the parts that are being removed, you know, more and more in the name of better test scores, you know, and.
0: And what good are test scores? Test scores don't teach anybody anything. Testing is something people should look
1: into. You know, who is funding these tests? What is the content? Do you know parents and teachers aren't allowed to know what the test questions are? You know, I mean, there's a lot of really interesting stuff there, and I think partly it's an indoctrination system. You know, we allow the kids to get tested. We hang our hats on the results as if they mean something, you know, and so that sets us up. When you were interviewing Leanne last week, I kept thinking of John Taylor Gatto's The Underground History of American Education, and, you know, reading that book, which, that's a big book, it took me a long time to read it, like a year or something, but holy cow, you know, it was part of one of the openings, the awakenings of my life, where, you know, something that I believed in, you know, like rock and roll, you know, I loved rock and roll growing up, but grew up you know, and started learning about sexual violence in the media. And, you know, I had to look back and go, "Mm," you know, maybe Madonna was not the best role model for me, you know, as a teenager. You know, and and life is about that. It's about these constant, you know, awakenings and learning more and broadening your understanding and, and wisdom. And we need more of that these days, I think.
0: Yeah, and we shouldn't be afraid of all of these different things. Like everything else, nothing is good or bad in itself. It's It's the way we interpret it or use it or perceive it or what we make out of it, how we respond to it and what we can learn from it.
1: Yeah, and like getting back to the schools and the kids and the masks. I mean, our response here, you know, is taking away all the good. You know, schools do a lot of good, you know. Well, of course, there are problems, you know, of course, with any system and all that, although we do have to be careful about just throwing the baby out with the bathwater, you know, and saying well, then let's just shut down schools, you know, they're horrifying, you know, whatever. You know, they're also where kids are warm and fed and loved, and they learn, they do, Mm -hmm. you
0: know. And um, up here in Vermont, I think we have it pretty good in terms of our schools and the school system.
1: Yeah, and caring people in
0: them, yeah, definitely. Mm -hmm. But in probably a large part of the rest of this country, it's much worse, especially in urban areas. I mean, I went to a lot of different schools myself. In my life. I think I went to 11 or 12 different schools for, for my 12 years, <laughs> many different types of schools, public schools in New York City, public schools up here in Vermont. I went to a private school for two half years in New York City, and I went to a Catholic school in southern Spain. So I've <laughs> made the rounds and had very, very different experiences in all of them.
1: Yeah, and so you had that nut cracked for you kind of probably early on. Like, I remember moving, you know, I moved like five times, you know, and each time it was like that. It was like, whoa, these people are completely different, (laughs) you know. They do things differently And every, you know, to a kid, you know, just the styles of dress and ways of talking and ways of doing math or whatever were quite shaking, (laughs) you know.
0: (laughs) And the way teachers respond to kids and the way they teach, the way they relate to kids, yeah, it's, yeah. Yeah. Any final thoughts?
1: <laughs> wow, we ran the gamut! That, that was excellent!
0: Yeah, I, I really enjoyed this.
1: Thank you so much. I you know, really I appreciate you know, that you do this show and bring this information out there. I, I so appreciate
0: it. Well, thank you so much for joining me and bringing your passion to this.
1: Yeah, no problem. It's, I can't help it. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah. So, any final words? Anything else?
1: You know, just remind people if if they want to get in touch with me or ask for any of these resources or, you know, I'm I'm also bringing my mask survey, you know, around to school boards and select boards. I went to my regional planning commission with it. I'm trying to share, you know, not just my mask survey results, but now I can share this German survey. You know, now the the body of research is coming out, you know, to help these decision-making bodies have a sensible, you know, risk-benefit analysis because they're the ones being asked to make these decisions. You know, employers, school boards, you know, people are saying these are mandates, but these are health guidelines, you Mm -hmm. know, legally. I mean, I'm not a lawyer, but Mm -hmm. (laughs) according to all the legal advice, you know, that's available out there, that's what they are. And if you read the documents yourself, you'll see that these are guidelines. They don't say must, they don't
0: say, you know, have to, you know. And it's all based on a limited understanding of the reality of all of this, and they admit it. And that makes it even more important for us to think critically about all this, to think for ourselves, and to question the prevailing authorities. And, of course, that includes questioning our own thinking.
1: Yeah, because really, you know, culpability, too, comes into it, you know, and responsibility. I mean, can you say I was just following orders, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, do we want to be those people? You know, that's not us. You know, that's not how we go about things. Not how we should, I don't think. Yeah, um,
0: yeah, I think that's yeah, more then, accurate. I think to a large degree we do. I mean, even highly educated people are just following, you know, as people start to panic and go into fear mode, they stop thinking and it reduces us to fight or flight, freeze or follow.
1: Yeah, yeah, and you know, one thing I, I wanted to mention too with your discussion with Leanne last week, you know, underground history of American education. Is what's the programming? You know, the German model of education that we're following now, you know, it had been in existence in Germany for a hundred years by the time World War II happened and by the time the Nazi Socialist Party took over. And we have to remember what they thought they were doing. You know, most people who participated thought they were making a better thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, it took a hundred years of that education system to set those people up to follow those orders. Mm-hmm. And when was our education system converted, thanks to funding by Rockefellers and things like that, um, Mm -hmm. to the German model because they thought it was so great? The 1920s. Yeah. And so in 100 years under this model, are we now in the same place? Are we now ready to...
0: Well, we've demonstrated it.
1: Yeah, I think we It's here. Yeah. Yeah, well, thank you for this interview.
0: I've enjoyed this very much. Thank you so much. And uh, be well. Yeah, you too. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And that was Amy Hornblass. She's a local teacher and graduate of Goddard College with a major in community health and a background in the effects of trauma on kids. And that's it for this Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, take good care of yourselves and each other.